From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, to Wharton Moneyball, the show where my three favorite topics, sports statistics and business, collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics and Data Science here at the Wharton School. I'm here this week with my co-host, Professor of Statistics and Data Science, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics and Data Science, Shane Jensen, some combination of the three of us, and our primary host, Cade Massey, here every week here on Wharton Moneyball, the podcast edition. Uh, we're here on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. And as we've been doing for the last 20 or so months, we spend the first quarter of our show typically talking about what's caught our eye in COVID, because that's both an interesting topical problem and, of course, an interesting statistical problem. Uh, quarters Q2 and 3 tend to be our open segments where we talk about various things in sports. And one of the things I always say is one of the wonderful things about doing Wharton Moneyball is we get to interview interesting guests. Today is no different. In Q4 of our show, we have Seth Partnow. Uh, Seth is an NBA analyst at The Athletic. He also written a book called The Midrange Theory, and we're going to talk to him about all kinds of topics related to basketball and analytics. So Adi and Shane, how are you guys doing today? Excellent. How are things going? Going well. Uh, and I'm uh, I'm feeling terrific today, which is a great improvement. Well, we'll so- get to that. We'll get to that in just a second. Matter of fact, why don't we start with, I've written a bunch of notes about what caught my eye in COVID, but I think we have to start with Professor Weiner. And of course, he can say whatever. It's his own personal business. He can say what he wants about COVID, not COVID, but we'll start with Professor Weiner. Yeah. So I'll, I'll remind us that back in like July, we had a conversation amongst ourselves, which was how contagious is Delta and how many of us would get it? Well, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm here to tell us that that number has now hit one, at least. Um, so I have, uh, since my last time on the show, I have contracted COVID and recovered from COVID, um, which is very surprising, as we'll, we'll have a chance to talk about, because not only did I have two vaccines, but I also was one Three. of the first. I had two vaccines and a booster. So That's what I mean, I, yeah. Right. So three vaccines and my booster wasn't even that long ago. It was about four, five, four or five weeks ago. Um, and the data, at least as indicated by both the CDC on its website and other countries that have analyzed this, have suggested that getting the getting an active case after being boosted is extraordinarily rare. So I got it. All right. And so that, of course, I ask, you know, leads to lots of questions. But I got it um, like I predicted. Um, it wouldn't wasn't a bad case at all. It was I wouldn't have even noticed it, which is something we can actually talk about because it didn't feel that different from my allergies, which is a lot, a lot of nose congestion, a little bit of chest congestion, but really basically nothing. But was the tip off that sent me scurrying was the, the essentially the immediate positive, which is the loss of smell. Well, you uh, told me the story. You went to drink yeah. a cup of coffee and you're like, this doesn't taste right. And, <laughs> you know, no like smell. <laughs> With, yeah. And it was that's a shocking turn of event. Well, Adi, so yeah. obviously we're not a small sample size show. We're Wharton Moneyball. So what do we know about breakthrough cases? What do we know about infection and seriousness of people that have been boosterized? So how surprising is it that there it, you would have been a breakthrough case? My read of the data suggests that the, the vaccine was actually not developed to prevent you from getting the infection. It was preventing you from getting seriously ill if you got the infection okay. against the Delta variant, not the Alpha right. variant, no, the no. Delta variant. Yeah. So I don't think I mean, we don't know a lot of things. First of all, um, I'll tell you, as I said, the CDC website indicated that really only immunocompromised people should get 
or, or elderly should get breakthrough cases after the, after the booster. So I'm not immunocompromised. So I actually think that they probably don't have the right, the right assessment on that score. Of course, I could be that one in 10,000. Um, that's, that's basically what Israel has been reporting, that your, your, your chance of being a breakthrough infection is, is actually really quite rare when you're not in the elderly category. Um, but I'm going to point something out, and I think we can all discuss this, is that if I hadn't lost my sense of smell, I'm not sure that I would even known that I had COVID. And I think this is now multiplied. And I called 12 people, including all of you, because we saw each other in person, in person four days before my very first symptom um, or five days or so. Um, and I called everyone I knew that I'd been with and everybody went and got tested. But it's very, you, you have to walk down a kind of a narrow path to find yourself actually dis- discovered as a case. Because once you have been um, uh, vaccinated, most people get very mild symptoms. That, and frankly, now that we're back in cold and flu season, you're likely to just ignore. Yep. So I don't know what the denominator is that, that figures out what the breakthrough rate is. All I know is um, we don't have, we just, the denominator consists of people who are tested, but the true denominator is everyone. And we don't know what that number is. Before I turn to Shane to no. what caught his eye in COVID, I just want to say one thing. You said something very interesting. I think it's important scientifically for our listeners. You said, if the data that, that you're seeing out of Israel is true, that breakthrough is one in 10,000, then what you start to say is one in 10, you've, you've said this so many times in our show over the last eight years, one in 100 happens. One in 10,000 doesn't happen that much. So what do you do then as a scientist? You can say, well, maybe it's not really one in 10,000. Maybe we don't really know. Maybe I was one in 10,000, or maybe there's some other complicating factor that they don't know yet that causes Adi Weiner to be more than one in 10,000, but it's really one in 10,000 for everybody else. But you're doing what a scientist does, which is if the, look, this is what I tell students all the time. You got COVID. That's a fact. So now what's the probability, given you got it, what's the probability you, we would observe this if what we think is true is true? Well, if that's a really no number, we can't refute that you got COVID. We have to refute what we think we know is true and say, maybe there's something we don't know. I mean, that's it. And, and, and that's that, science. That's the scientific principle. It's basically Bayes rule. It comes down to right. it. very unusual happening. And I've got to parse which is the more likely unusual event. And frankly, I'm, I think, or compromise, you kind of weight all the unusual events. And I think that the, the rate of breakthrough infections are a lot higher than we think. And I think after the vaccine kind of wears off a little bit, that, that rate is actually extreme. And that number we've seen. We've seen that where even in their ex- emergency youth authorization for the booster, Pfizer, who has every, I don't know, they have a financial incentive to say the thing stops working, give everyone 10 shots a day. But ignoring the financial parts, they've even said it goes down to about 40% against getting the vaccine, against getting the virus, not against severe hospitalization. But they're even saying after six months, it's down to 40%. But let me turn it over to Shane. Shane, what's caught your well, eye? I mean, I mean first, first kind of following up on this, you you know, this kind of idea that we really have no idea about the kind of actual infection rate because so many people are essentially asymptomatic to the point where they wouldn't get tested. Do we not have, I mean, they're probably not generalizable, but don't we have, I'm, I'm a little surprised that across society, we don't have a set of group of people that are regularly kind of tested just because of their occupation or whatever, where you could kind of get a little bit of a better handle 
on this idea of like, you know, testing, you know, being positive for the virus, even though they are completely asymptomatic. Shane, could you just lay this out? Yeah, could you lay this out for our listeners? What a randomized testing strategy might look like? Like what would you, you know, you'd get a, would get a panel of people, you test them over time. How would you sue them? I mean, I think we've talked about this when COVID first came out, like, how can we not be doing randomized testing, yeah. randomized testing? So maybe and that would be the, that would be the ideal scenario for getting an actual generalizable kind of estimate of the sort of asymptomatic infection rate is that you have a random sample of people, very kind of well-designed experiment where you track longitudinally, maybe test them every like week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm surprised. I mean, we definitely don't have that in society, but I'm surprised we don't have at least some very, you know, some non-random samples of people yeah, that are tested at a high frequency. Yeah, I mean, we do things like professional athletes and stuff, but maybe that's not exactly the best. That's, that's a very non-generalizable sample. You see, you see what struck me during my own illness, which I've been, I mean, I've just d- d- dove into the data mercilessly. I didn't, couldn't leave my house. And, and I, I got very, very interested again in a way that I hadn't been almost since the beginning. Um, but I can tell you this, that, I, and I'm conjecturing, I think the probability of being tested, if you have these mild symptoms, as which I think most people's cases begin with mild symptoms, um, and they just careen out of control when, 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 when they become severe. You don't like wake up one morning and feel like you need to go to the hospital. You tend to have a certain mild, mild set of uh, illness conditions, and then you just sort of, and then things go south. If you're vaccinated and you have these mild conditions, you're quite likely, I believe, to ignore them and only in the sense that you don't bother to get tested. And and so I'm wondering whether the likelihood of getting tested is now highly confounded with your vaccine status. And that that would be that would be um, allowed. You could control for that. Which way? I just want to make sure for our listeners here on Wharton Money. And by the way, for our listeners that want to join us, you can always follow us on Twitter at at W Moneyball. You could also always email us. We like taking email questions. Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. I just want to be clear for our listeners, Adi, which way are you saying the correlation goes? Given you're vaccinated, are you more likely or less likely to get tested? Less, less likely because the reason for that is a couple of things. First of all, when you do get a, uh, a, a mild discolder symptoms, you think you're vaccinated. So it's probably not COVID. It's just the, the allergies or the flu or the cold or the, the strep throats that are around here in the winter. And so that leads you to think, well, I'm vaccinated. So those are more likely. So I'm not going to bother. The second is the consequence to you are less. So if you're, uh, if, you're, if you're not vaccinated, you have now the opportunity, as we now know exists, to go get treated. Um, and those treatments, and by the way, I will say, I, mean, I could talk about this, but my collaboration with David Fagenbaum has led to me to know that there's at least a few drugs that are very useful for early stage COVID. And we, I talked about them with David, or I talked about my doctor, and he prescribed me those. Um, and if I and 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 if I'm unvaccinated, I'm a hundred times more likely to want to go get those those early. Yeah, well, but also, logic, just one second, Shane. I just want to point up one point here. I want Adi to tell the listeners here. Um, so, if you believe that the probability of getting tested, given you're vaccinated, is lower, what are the implications of that? for the direction of bias of the base rates we're seeing now? Because that's what our listeners want to know. Like if, if they're reporting, given you get tested, you know, uh, the positivity rate is 1%, 2%, whatever it is, 6%. What does it mean if the vaccinated people are less represented in that sample because they're less likely to get tested? 
Okay, so my I guess immediately what it means is that the protection rate is is overestimated fundamentally. I mean, that's really what it's doing. You're, in other words, your likelihood of getting an active case is definitely underestimated. Is, is not currently- Well, it, it depends again on what you mean by protection. You mean protection against viral, lo- like actually being infected by COVID. That's right. And I think one of the reasons why we we rightly concentrate on hospitalizations and severe illnesses, there's no disguising that. Those people are identified and they're not hiding. Um, and so- it, I don't, I'm not worried about the assessment that says you're, you know, X times more likely to be hospitalized or die from COVID if you're vaccinated. I think those are good, reliable numbers, and they're really, really high. And and most I can tell are- you what they are. I can tell you what they are right now. Okay. Um, it's I just I went to the CDC website today because I figured someone would ask this or I would bring it up. You are 11.3 times more likely of dying from COVID if you're unvaccinated. According if, to this. You're, if you're a randomly chosen person, if you and we're all not, we are all individuals. If you're conditioned that on age, it's much higher. It's only the really older group that have a much lower ratio. Well, so and this actually kind of leads into. I yeah, mean, I don't want to move, move on, but this kind of leads into sort of the thing I've been thinking about with COVID the last few days, which is, you know, obviously. Um, some of the very promising things about about vaccinate the kind of vaccination trends especially in the U.S. or actually across the world is that old people, the the elder, you know, the oldest age brackets are very vaccinated. In the U.S., it's something like you know ninety five seven plus. No, percent. Shane. Before I just I want you to continue, but yeah. I got to tell this stat. I saw this thing on the CDC website, and I'm gonna while you're speaking, I'm gonna check it again. But here's the stat I just saw, Adi, of yep. people age sixty five plus. Mm-hmm. One dose, mm-hmm. at least one dose. Mm-hmm. 99.2% is what's claimed by the CDC website. I, I have a hard time believing that's true. <laughs> I'm just yeah. telling you what well, it says. So, this is, so this kind of, maybe this leads into, again, the question I, or what I've been pondering is, if those, if, the, if those numbers are correct, and it's like 99 plus percent of people 65 and over are vaccinated, and we see that this, you know, like, as you just said, Eric, like it's 11 times less likely or 11 times more likely to die if you're unvaccinated than vaccinated. Have we gotten to the point or will we get to the point where the kind of death rate for COVID is no longer monotonic with age? Yeah. Have we gotten there already? Is it still true that age 65 plus is still the most vulnerable to dying of COVID, just kind of marginally yeah. over that age bracket or not? By the I way, just, just, just so you guys know the news, I'm, I just put it up on the screen for my co-authors to see here, my colleagues to see here. Uh, since I looked this morning, according to the CDC website, this is now up to 99.4%. Forget 99.2%. So, so my answer to you is I don't think so, because I believe that, in the, that so much of the death happens at the eldest age, and they are... They, and I think it counteracts the effect of the vaccine, um, even though they are. So, a is that eleven times more likely to die unvaccinated? Is that the, the same value? That's an average. That's, that's an average. average. Shane, but Shane, your question is such a perfect question because think about it. Right now, let's take someone age eighty and yeah. someone age fifty. It might be true that just looking at the average, there's 30% more likely for the person that's age 80 to be vaccinated. It's probably about right. Maybe it's 20% more. But the death rate is so much more for the 80-year-old 80, 80 to the 50-year-old. And yeah. so, and in fact, I think Adi's point is, 
you'll never because the the curve drops or the death rate drops up goes up so fast or the survival rate goes down so fast that you're never gonna i mean you'd have to be maybe at, you'd have to be like at a five to one ratio to even put a dent in the age effect i don't want to misinterpret you adi but is that what you're saying uh, that's basically it. the vaccine is effective but it's least effective for the eldest so it just doesn't have the effect of turning around that age curve although it does fl- flatten the curve i think that's the right way of describing it it definitely flattens that exponential growth just down something that probably is closer to linear um, as you get older because of the effect of the vaccine. But one of the things that, that I'm really, and we, we conjectured this on our show several times or in our previous week's discussion, but I'm really holding to it as a more of a, a, of a, of a real, of a more of a forecast, which is I believe that um, we're all going to get COVID. And that's and the only question is the only way out of that game is if another vaccine comes along or because it just doesn't seem to be, the kind of virus that goes away like smallpox. It is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. I believe that COVID will become endemic, kind of like the flu. And who hasn't had the flu at some point in right. their life? Right. And so the really issue is not if you're going to get it, but when and what are the what treatments will there be available at the time? Yeah. And the only thing that, frankly, you know, when I got COVID, I'll just feel psychological to explain this. I mean, we talked about it privately. I'll share with her. The only thing that scared me was the loss of smell. Only because I know young people who've lost their smell for a long, long, long time. And as someone who enjoys eating and drinking, and um, it makes an enormous impact. And losing my smell, even that doesn't ruin your quality of life. It doesn't I mean doesn't kill you by any stretch. That's a really bad outcome. And that's something that I think most people would want to avoid, even if they know that they have no other long-term effects or no serious illness risk. That's something you want to avoid. And that's why I'm encouraging people, don't get COVID if you can avoid it. On the other right, hand... Right. You have to ask yourself what we as a society are are accepting in exchange for that. And I think you and you know, we're in this kind of nice sweet spot where you don't give up that much. But a lot of people still continue. Oh, a huge amount. Enormous yeah. amount. And I wonder whether or not at some point we have to throw up our hands and say. Well, this I, so I, have- well, and I mean, I think. I, I, oh, go ahead, Shane. So I, I, I'll just sort of add, I think, you know, the other thing that kind of caught my eye is, you know, we're seeing. The other kind of positive thing that I think is sort of out there in the news is there's continuing kind of advantage, you you know, there's, um, you know, these, these treatment pills, you know, for Pfizer and Merck that like, they're coming, you know, I mean, that's a guy, you know, I mean, if those kind of work as, as quote unquote advertised, that's a game changer for all this. Right. Because then, then, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's endemic then in the same way headaches are endemic, you you know, or, or whatever. Like if it's really something where, we can kind of, we have not just, you know, like that we have a way of kind of bringing that death rate really down, not all, not just through vaccines, which obviously are, are, are a little bit more controversial with people. I think that, that, that would be kind of a huge way, you know, if you talk about a return to normalcy, we're all kind of trying to get there at our own rate, but the, the, like, like the availability of treatment pills would, I think be a real uh, kind of jump forward basically. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing Statistics and Data Science. I'm here with Professors of Statistics and Data Science, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen, some combination of the three of us and our host, uh, Cade Massey, here every week here on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Moneyball. You know, what you guys both just said, I listened to uh, a doctor from, I think it was the head of health at University of San Francisco, and he was talking last night, and they asked him why he was going back to somewhat normalcy. And his comment related to what both of you said. He said he thought a couple months ago that things were going to get much, much better, like maybe even COVID might go away. He's now convinced it's not going away. 
but that it'll be manageable. And his, his exact words were, I thought the cavalry was coming, but now I don't think the cavalry is coming. In other words, there'll be a combination of vaccines that are going to be very effective, pills that are very effective. Maybe you choose to wear a mask when you're in an indoor place with lots and lots of people. His comment was, we should have been doing that for years due to flu and lots of other things. But his comment is that, you know, um, at some point, why don't we realize, and this relates to what caught my eye, we're not going down in the number of cases as a nation. I understand heterogeneity. We're actually up a little bit now. We're now back up to 80,000 plus cases a day. We were at 70,000. We're now at 80,000. And the statistic, and I'd love your guys' thoughts on this, that I keep talking about is, I understand it's just a simple metric. But if we take the number of cases, sorry, the number, yeah, the number of cases and the number of deaths, the number's been 1.25% in the United States forever. And here's what I mean. When we were at our peak in the summer, there were 250,000 cases a day and about a little over 3,000 deaths. You can do the math. That's 1.25%. We're now at 80,000 cases a day and 1,000 deaths, 1.25%. So my question, I want to keep asking this because I still want to understand this. Given, as Adi talked about, the treatments we know about, Maybe what Shane talked about, maybe the pills coming out is going to be the game changer and lower that number dramatically. But eventually, given that you have a positive case, doesn't the death rate have to start going down eventually due to therapeutics? I mean, I'll I'll just point out quickly that it is. I I mean, if you look at New York Times right now, the last two weeks, the case rate's gone up by 14% and the death rate's gone down by 14%. Now, you could argue there's a lag involved, and so that's not really, you know, there. But, you know, those two can't, I, I mean, you, you're not, you know, those two can't continue to move in opposite directions. And your statement about this 1.25 being a constant be the case, right? I mean, relatively a constant. I'm just saying it hasn't varied by more. It, if I took the, in, the confidence interval, 1.25% plus or minus 0.1%, it would cover the ratio of deaths to cases, it would cover 90 plus percent of the weekly data points that we've seen. So I, I, I'm going to just follow that up by pointing out that we're one of the few countries that that has stayed the same. Um, England, for example, that rate has dropped precipitously since vac- vaccination. In Israel, it's dropped a lot, not as much as it went down in the UK, but it was started from a much lower number. Um, in terms of the percentage, the death rate as reported, I think a lot has to do with our reporting. Uh, and I think we, we differ extraordinarily in our, I think we are still the most decentralized health system in the Western world where it just, I mean, I got tested at Penn. I have no idea whether that, that, that data point got stuck in some CDC. I don't know what they did with it. You know, (laughs) You and know? I mean, do, is there a ten? Is there a because you know? Is there some aspect of the U.S. healthcare system also that would lead to a greater tendency? Because I do know that 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 death rate could also be inflated because you know people go into the hospital and they're sick, and COVID's one of the things that pops up as positive, and then they die. But maybe it's not actually COVID that killed them, but it counts as a COVID death. I don't know to the extent that that kind of dynamic, so let me ask you, which we do Shane. know is happening yeah. out there. No, it's there's no more question in the happening. U.S. than other countries or not. I don't know. But I want to say, let's imagine that the 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 death rate to cases in the U.S. is three or four times what it is in most other countries, which it is. 
Do you, what's the effect size of what you're describing? Do you think it could be explaining yeah. half of that? I mean, it just doesn't seem like it could be explaining that much of the effect. No, no, and I, I'm not claiming that that's the entirety of the difference. I'm, I'm, I'm just intrigued like you are. Like, what is, you know, what is kind of the, I mean, you'd need somebody with a lot more knowledge of the kind of the healthcare system and how these things actually are reported to answer the question of like, you know, how, how much of these kind of, excess deaths that I guess America is experiencing is just a reporting thing as opposed to real actual excess deaths due to COVID. So let's in the last few minutes in quarter one, where we're here talking about COVID, which has been our first quarter here on Morton Moneyball for the last 19 or 20 months. So we're heading into the colder winter months. Obviously that means more indoor time. Um, People are not particularly wearing masks a lot indoors anymore. Some are, some are not. We obviously have to at work, as we're told to, and I would be wearing one anyway, but everyone can make a personal choice. Um, what do you see happening if, you know, when we're here in February and March and we're broadcasting on Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, um, what do you think we're going to be talking about in terms of the case rate and in terms of the uh, death rate, knowing, by the way, remember, by that point in time, there'll be a lot of people where if they don't get booster shots, they could be eight months, nine months, 10 months, 12 months from their original two shots. Given all of that information, where do you think we are in three months from now? The heat of the, 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 well, the pun, the heat of the winter. Where are we? Adi, we'll start with you. I'll start. I'm happy to. I think we're going to have, we have two, two forces working in opposite directions. Uh, boosters will bring things down, but uh, wearing off va- vaccination protection will bring things up and the winter will bring things up. So I believe we're probably going to stay very steady where there is every day slightly more cases, just as it's happening now. I, I, you know, my students are almost, you know, weekly, I'm ticking off one or two who get COVID Um, and uh, I got COVID. I think we're just going to see just a a steady trickle of cases. Um, Nothing overwhelming. uh, By the way, you know, one thing I I like personally report, nobody I was in contact with got COVID. Um, and every one of them was tested. It was a, it was an, a big giant offer, um, and uh, which suggests that it still confirms with there are t- two types of people: the people who spread it to basically nobody, and the people who spread it to a ton of people. So I was in the nobody group. Um, my my son's cohort when he got COVID, he was in the everybody group. Everybody he knew who was exposed got it. Um, so I think it'll. I'm, I'm thinking we're gonna we'll see maybe a slight increase, but no explosion uh, this time around. But no decrease. No, but no diminishment to zero. That's not happening. So Shane, yeah, what's, I mean, your I for, think... what's your forecast of where we'll be at? Shane? Well, well, yeah, oh, please, sorry. Go ahead. I, 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 no, I mean, I guess I don't, I mean, I'll add to kind of the kind of forces showing increase that, that we haven't mentioned just at the holiday, in addition to the temperature, you know, uh, going down in, in most of the U.S. Uh, such that indoor activity is going to be more incentivized. Also, the holiday season, obviously, again, you're going to have a lot more travel, a lot more. These things certainly led to a spike last time, you know, this this time last year. Um, but I'm at least hopeful that, you know, between the booster and maybe some of these pills coming down the pike and everything like that, that maybe we'll start to continue to see a little bit more of a decoupling of that death rate versus the case rate, you know, because of course the death rate is really kind of what I tend to focus on. I mean, the case rate, 
you know, to the extent that the case rate drives death rate, that's consequential too. But I mean, again, if, if COVID ends up being just this thing that a lot of, you, you know, this endemic thing that we kind of just go through, but is not particularly deadly, that that is kind of the, you know, probably the best return to normalcy we can kind of hope for at this point. So I'll give my opinion before we wrap up here in Q1. I think the unfortunate thing, this is my belief, I have no proof, it's a forecast, um, is that the booster rate will not go up fast enough to counterbalance the decline in effectiveness of the original two shots due to time. I'm quite concerned that the case rate and the death rate will not go down. I think the case rate, the death rate will probably, well, I've said it's been constant. I have no reason to believe it won't still be constant, but I think the number of cases is going to go up significantly. So my concern, again, Adi talked about, I agree, we just talked about two different counterbalancing forces. I'm talking about, again, the idea that the booster take-up rate won't be as fast as the effectiveness rate of the two shots drop when many people will be getting beyond a year beyond which they got their boosters. But I'll just point out though, I'll I'll just point out though that, you know, again, we're we're focusing so much on booster and the original vaccines and the immunity they confer. Keep in mind there is also natural immunity. Yep. You know, from getting COVID. So that, you know, that, you know, there, there is kind of like, you know, that is, uh, I guess, you know, it's a weird way to think about it, but it's a weird no. reason to be optimistic that the natural immunity in the population is can only really be. Hey, look, we're, I'm a marketing professor. We talk about diffusion models. You can only be a first time buyer once. Yeah. And so the minute those people are out of the population, assuming they can't get it again, which, by the way, is not true. Yeah, I mean, natural immunity also does wear off eventually. It, it, it wears off, you know, too. Yet another level of protection. I was just going to say. I'll give you the last word in quarter one. I, I just to say Florida, just confirming Florida, which had the worst outbreak in the summer, actually is the lowest place in the country right now. It's practically nothing. They have a right. good combination of lots of vaccines and lots of natural immunity. Um, will that and help for the next it. variant? Uh, who knows? But um, I, I don't I mean, you know, I think that's something to be to to remind ourselves about. Well, this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball, the COVID segment of Wharton Moneyball, which we've been doing for the last 20 months. This is Eric Bradlow here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Q2 of Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing, Statistics, and Data Science here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my two co-hosts today, Professor of Data Science and Statistics, Adi Weiner, Professor of Data Science and Statistics, Shane Jensen, some combination of the three of us, and Professor of OID, Kate Massier here every week here on Wharton Moneyball. Um, So guys, I had something interesting that I was thinking about this week. I was thinking about the four major sports and I wanted to ask you guys, I'm going to go through them one at a time, starting with the MLB, because we know the Braves just won the World Series. But I want to ask you an interesting question and see what your predictions are for, and the baseball will be the following year, NBA it'll be this year, but let me just get started. So let's imagine going into 2022 baseball season, okay? Normally, you might think the Braves, the champs, the champs, they're the favorite, right? They're the champs. However, let me provide you a little bit of data. They were the champs. There's no doubt about it. They won the World Series. They had the 11th best record in baseball in 2021. I want to say it again for our listeners out there. There are 30 teams in Major League Baseball. The team that won the World Series is the, was the 11th best record. As a matter of fact, four out of the five teams in the AL East, and they all play each other, had 90 or more wins 
and the Braves won 88. So let's just start. The entire AL East, except for Baltimore, had a better winning percentage than the Atlanta Braves. So yeah, my question, I mean, like, Shane, let me just start with, let me ask my specific yeah. question and just get your thoughts. If given they were 11th in terms of the best record, but they did win the World Series, where would you put them at the start of the 2022 baseball season? Well, I mean, I, I the way I regard the playoffs, I mean, you know, those are extra games they played and their wins, you know, you know the, I mean, I'd add their wins and losses in the playoffs into their overall record, you know, but I wouldn't, I, I, and I'd maybe even wait the playoff games a little bit more because of recency or whatever, but like, you know, I wouldn't wait, you know, the fact that they, the fact that the Braves won a couple more games than everybody else in the playoffs <laughs> doesn't really speak that much to, is not as predictive as like the Dodgers winning 106 games or whatever in the regular season. So, I mean, you know, if add in the playoff wins and losses and the Braves probably are, yeah, they're like the sixth or seventh best team going into next season. Adi, what are your thoughts about the Braves? Yeah, I'd have to agree with Shane. <laughs> a couple of factors I'd throw in. I think they started off poorly um, and they got their act together, made some critical changes, which are visible. So, Maybe they're not 11. Uh, they did win the World Series. Um, I'm not so sure they're six, though, Shane. I think both maybe a little lower. <laughs> yeah, that. no, I mean, I, I just yeah. tossed, you, you, you know, I, I shrunk from one to 12, you know, right. I did the halfway. On the other hand, I mean, 12. I wouldn't, but on the other hand, a team that I might, I mean, I think there's two or three teams that I clearly put higher um, for next year. But other teams that I might put higher um, are barely higher. I mean, there's how much a lot- mean reversion given, I think the forecast for the giants at the beginning of yeah. the season was 79, I think. And they yeah. ended up winning 107. If I had to ask you guys, how many wins would you predict for the giants next year? Yeah. Yeah. Would no, be, I mean, that, would be that, over that, 80, would it be over 85 because no. they, yeah, they were very unpredictable. You know, I, I, you know, how much should we kind of regress them relative to our expectations? Also, of course, you know, they, they lost, you, you know, they are losing at least one of their best players due to the retirement. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would, I would, I, I, I guess even though, even though I think in the wins loss rankings, they're going to be, you know, two or three factoring in the playoffs. Um, I would probably pull them down, you know, I, I maybe even below the Braves just because I think there'll be a little less uh, stationarity in their, um, in their, uh, uh, you know, roster construction. So let's continue through our sports, although I'm always happy to talk about baseball. Let's continue through our sports. So and it's a question definitely I'll talk to Seth Partnow about in Q4, who, again, uh, author of the book, The Mid-Range Theory. We're going to talk to him about his book and sports analytics and stuff. The Milwaukee Bucks, the champs, the champs. Currently, there are 16 teams, 16 teams in each conference in basketball. The Milwaukee Bucks are 11th in the East with a six and eight record. So Shane, I'll start with you this time. Where would you put the Bucks? given, you know, we're not 30 games into the season, but we're 14 games into the season and they're 11th. They're 11th in the Eastern conference. So it literally, if the playoffs started today, no repeat champs, the Bucks are not in the playoffs. No, I think we think they're going to make the playoffs, but I mean, where would you put them? How much shrinkage would you do on them? They were number one, and now they're number 11 in the East. Forget 20-something. In in the- I mean, again, you know, we, we talked about this in hockey a couple weeks with, uh, with the NHL, uh, hockey a couple weeks But we're about ago. to get to the lightning in a second, but go no, ahead. No, of course. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But, like, I think, 
Um, you know, and I said that like, I wouldn't really read anything into a record before 20 games. Of course, I've since proceeded to get excited about various, you know, records in hockey prior to 20 games hitting it. But I, I, my guess I is there's an NFL team on you, that would plays you, in- do you, I, I personally think the Bucks are still going to be, if I had to predict, I'd still put them at three or four in the conference. Maybe I, maybe I pull them off the one or two slot just cause they have the, you know, that's a lot of ground to make up on also very good teams. But I, I think they'll make it up into three, four, five, somewhere in that range for uh, by the end of the season. Adi, Indeed. any thoughts given their 11th now, but they won the title? And by the way, just to remind everybody, um, you know, I keep telling this, they were a toe away from a uh, Kevin Durant shot to eliminate them in last year's uh, NBA playoffs. Um, I don't remember if they were the – they probably were the one seed in the East last year, actually. I think they were the one seed in the East. So that's also worth some diagnostic value, too, during the regular season. But, Adi, where would you put the Milwaukee Bucks? Well, I'll just, I just – I'm not going to put it right away until I give you my, my thought processes. I know that the basketball season is a lot longer than it needs to be, which is <laughs> well, well understood. Um, now, As so, opposed to baseball, but go ahead, Adi. Well, baseball is not enough, not long enough in terms All of... All right, that's what I thought you'd say, but please, go yeah, ahead. Of course you'd say, you knew that. But the season-end games are just not long enough. Yeah. And so the point and being, each individual game needs to be longer, too. But go ahead, Adi. We don't mean no, to interrupt no, we you. Not, we do not need. But the point I'm making is that 14 games is actually a lot um, for basketball, probably much more than it would be for any sport in terms of what it reveals about the team. Now, maybe as uh, uh, it has to do with injury, right? I don't think their starting five has played more than, you know, a few minutes together. I, I mean, someone who knows more about basketball might know more than me about that score. And so maybe that, that 14 games is not really that revealing because over a short term, you can have an injury, which can mean something. Um, so those two things kind of go to, hand in hand. And so I, I would definitely knock them off the one and two with Shane. And like I did with the previous estimate with Atlanta's, I'm maybe going a tad bit lower, but not too much lower. What's actually very interesting. Uh, let me ask you guys, before I move on to the NFL, which is obviously a sport I'm very interested in because of who won the title last year. But let's, uh, let me stay with the NBA. You made a, a comment, Adi, about, you know, they haven't been healthy. Where do you integrate into your probability that, Maybe if they haven't been healthy, what belief do you have that they will be healthy? Like, you know, maybe the guys are on an injury plague season. You know, well, they're injured now, but they'll be healthy later. Says you. Who yeah, said that? Yeah, you know, that's tricky because you have to really know much more about sports-specific injuries. I mean, the thing about getting injured is you get better. Um, but one of the things, you know, I've been reading Seth Partnow's book, which we'll talk about when he comes on the show later. But one of the points that, that uh, he talked about in, talks about in the book is how Seth, Steph Curry um, was signed for a ridiculously cheap contract, his second contract, because he had some injury issues and people essentially forecasted those injury issues out as a, a certain detriment to his future value. None of that came to play and he turned out to be immensely overvalued, uh, overvalued relative to his contract. So maybe there's, I mean, basketball probably has a lot of difficult injury forecasting. I do feel like basketball players tend to recover. Um, far better than they than other sports. At Depends least. what the injury is. Clay Thompson doesn't think that, but go ahead. But I don't know. I don't know what the study might, what the actual data says about recovery. And that's where actually, honestly, where data could be really be informative. You can look at the types of injuries they have and and kind of get a base rate about what is their likelihood of recovery. How, how important for an analyst, for a betting person, I'd be looking at that pretty closely. How important in basketball do you think it is, maybe Shane, we'll start with you, that they actually have experience playing together that season? In other words, the Bucs are essentially the same team as they were last year. They've added, you know, some rookies here and there. But, like, you know, let's imagine that they don't get help. Let's imagine there are five starters from last year 
who won the title don't play together fully, really, until game 70 of the season. Is that fine? Well, I mean, you know, I'm sort of, I, I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't watch basketball as closely as you do, but I kind of feel like even the super teams do need time to kind of gel as a complementary group of individuals. I mean, I, I think back to one of the first super teams we ever saw, which was that, you, you know, the, that Miami heat team, you know, once LeBron got there and even those guys, I mean, they, they came close. Don't get me wrong, but they didn't win in their first season together. It, no, did, you know, it, it took, it took multiple seasons playing together, even as this collection of superstars to really kind of, you know, make it, especially because, you know, you know, deep into the playoffs, you're also going up against other super teams. So it's not like, I mean, you know, I think, you know, so um, I, I, I think a, a team that either due to injuries or due to acquisition only comes together at like game 70, you know, I, I guess they've got the playoffs to put together, but I, I would not, you know, be, I, I would not be betting on them specifically to kind of throw it together that short of a window. All right, well, let's move on to major sport number three, the NFL. So the Buccaneers won the title, but just to remind everybody, the Buccaneers were 7-5 and five at one point last season. There's the GOAT. We got uh, Shane with his number 12 and GOAT shirt on or sweatshirt on. The Bucs were 7-5 and five last season at one point, won their last four games, and of course, obviously, by definition, won every game in the playoffs. Um, they're 6-3 and three right now. They had two really bad losses. They lost to the Washington football team, and I'm just trying to remember who they lost to before that. Well, it the Saints. The, the Saints. Okay, that wasn't a horrible loss, except who was quarterbacking for them at the time. They're now fourth in the NFC. So where, let me ask a two-part question, but it's the same question, really. Where would you put the Bucs right now? And is there more shrinkage to the prior in football? Like, would you give the Bucs more of the benefit of the bargain here? Or in baseball or basketball, of the three sports we mentioned, which one do you think last year's title kind of you're willing to put more weight on? Um, I think in football, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, it, it's hard, it's hard to say, I, it's hard to kind of talk about the general trends, you know, as opposed to specifically the Bucks. Cause I think uh, the Buccaneers, I think are, are, are going to be there at the end of the season and in the playoffs and uh, making a Super Bowl run because right now, you know, they're, they're kind of middling record is pretty explainable by the injury you know the d- injuries that they've faced and you know some of those may end up being kind of season long like Vita Vea Vita Vea is out for a significant amount of time they that's that's a big I hadn't even heard is Vita Vea hurt now too oh he was all he went off on a cart in the game I mean I don't think it's supposed to be it's not supposed to be a season ending thing but he he was carted off yesterday all right, well that's not good yeah that's really bad yeah so so but but I mean you know if you know, if, if it's, you know, to a certain extent, I guess not, you know, them being worse than last year, like, you know, due to injuries, a little bit better news, because that is, as Audie pointed out, something that can improve and get better as the season goes on. But of course, um, I think all of us have a sense, at least, that football injuries tend to be more lasting and potentially more serious. And, you know, we could start adding up the Bucks players that are injured. You know, Antonio Brown's been out. Gronk's been out. Their mm-hmm. entire secondary is essentially yeah. out. Uh, you just mentioned Vita Vea is out. And so there's guys out all over the field. Yeah, no, and I mean, like, that's sort of, that's a key thing. I mean, obviously, like, I, you know, what happened to Dallas between last season and this season? That's such a game changer. Well, you know, last season they lost their best player to injury and that was it type of thing. So, right. I mean, that's kind of, that's sort of 
that's to a certain extent why you can't get to, you know, that, that, that limits your predictive ability for football in general. And, and I think basketball as well, uh, that like, you know, because the each team's success is so focused on the continued success and performance of a very small subset of players, injuries can have a huge effect. So let me ask you guys, um, how, if you wanted to analytically study which sport has the most, let's call it, carryover effect from season to season, how would you do it? I'm just asking you a question. I'm not, I mean, this is, by the way, just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing statistics and data science. I'm here talking to professors of statistics and data science, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Master here every week on Wharton Moneyball. You can always, as you know, join the conversation at, at WMoneyball or email us at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. This is not something that's in our notes. I'm just asking these guys yeah. on the fly. Adi, how would you do it? How would you test the character or the effects of priors or carryover effects in sports? Uh, there's, three, there's three obvious ways to me to do it. Obviously, one thing is just you just correlate the win percentage year to year. So the, the autoregressive correlation coefficient on, your, on the time series of your winning percentage. Um, and I actually don't know what, how that compares from team to, from league to league. That's one thing I would, uh, that I, I should know offhand. I, do, I would suspect that basketball is the strongest. Um, yep. And, and, uh, but, and I have the data. I just have, don't know what offhand. Yeah, I, I just uh, – the trouble with winning, I mean, I would – Let's go one at a time, Adi, but you go ahead, Shane. Before I hear Shane, the, other, the problem with that is, of course, is that winning, winning percentage is a little noisy and you really care. You really want to know the chance of being a playoff team. So you could just have a, 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 a you could just dichotomize or trichotomize the teams and look at and look at the probability of being a playoff team given your play, playoff the team the previous year and, and see how that changes from sport to sport. But yeah, uh, Shane. Well, that was going to be my oh. point. Yeah. So I mean, like, oh. like just, just to kind of like, I mean, the trouble with winning percentage or something like that. I think personally, I mean. And the reason, you know, basketball, like, you know, has the highest correlation is that there's too many teams, especially teams on the bottom end that are like, you know, like kind of perfect. It's very, it's very easy. If you're a terrible team and you don't want, you know, you don't make solid efforts to get better, that can carry over from season to season for forever, essentially. And we, we, we see that in several sports. And I think that kind of, you know, maybe, you know, that's why the, you just kind of looking at the win percentage correlation is, is, is not as good as, as Audie pointed out, I think looking right. at kind of probability but, of making the playoffs can, you, you know, just kind of looking at the playoff teams, how much, how much the identity of the playoff teams change from year to year. Look, before I we think. get Audie's, before we get Audie's third suggestion, you said you had three, um, you better think of a third while I'm saying something. I have one, but it's not that different from my All first. right, but, but, but let me just ask a question. What you just said, both of you just said, may puzzle a number of our listeners. Let me say why. You agree that if you think about from an information theory perspective, number of wins is a more refined scale than just the dichotomy of make the playoffs or not. So you're suggesting, I, and you can correct me if I heard, I, don't, I know I didn't hear you wrong, but correct me if I'm going in the wrong direction here. You're suggesting throwing away information, taking a continuous win score and dichotomizing it or possibly trichotomizing it and looking at the conditional probability 
as opposed to a correlation. So I just want to hear, I just want to hear your response to that. As a matter of fact, I'll go to our information theorist, Adi Weiner here. You want me to throw away information and use that. You want me to use a more rough measure. I can't tell the eighth seed in basketball from the first seed. They both made the playoffs, but one had 43 wins. The other had 62 wins. And you want me to treat them the same. Respond to that, Professor Weiner. All right. So I didn't say that the, uh, the, Conditional probability of playoff is the best measure. I just think it is an alternative. Um, part, one of the problem with the correlation is that if you have outliers or discount or uh, or nonlinearity, it's a terrible measure. Right, it's um, a linear measure of association, and it's easily with only thirty teams. It's easy to have a couple of you know crazy outliers on either end to really have an enormous influence on that correlation estimate. It's also highly variable, so you have an estimation problem um, when with continuous data which is, and again, you think about it from an information theory perspective, when you have um, one bit of information to estimate, which is binary, um, there's much less variance. Yeah, uh, so I was uh, hoping that was your answer, Adi. I talk about this with the students all the time. One measure has more granularity and potentially more information, but it also has much more measurement error. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so also, have, I, I mean, I also think it's almost like an apples to oranges thing in a way in that, I mean, you know, if, if you if you're trying to predict next year's wins totals like across the spectrum of all 32 teams or whatever, then, yeah, last year's wins, I think, will probably be a more predictive measure than just the discretization of made the playoffs or not. But who cares about predicting yeah. the wins of the bad team? You know, I guess I, I, I think it's more of a we're cha- it's not a it's about, you know, kind of focusing on what you really meant by carryover. Well, actually, uh, Shane just brought a very you know? interesting point. It reminds me in our last three minutes or so of this segment, it reminds me of, you know, the classic problem that I remember learning from Don Rubin a long time ago, which is if I take SAT scores on the y-axis and GPA on the x-axis and I look at the correlation between the two, it's very positive. But if I go purely to the top teams, the top schools, and I look at the correlation between the two, there's no correlation in the upper part of the distribution. So what you just said, Shane, reminds me of that. If I look at the really good teams, there may be zero correlation or very small correlation between win percentage year over year. The reason why there's any correlation is because of the heterogeneity among teams that's spreading it out, which is creating what appears to be a very predictive relationship, but it's not among the best teams. Yeah, look at baseball. Uh, It's very predictable. We can predict with high certainty who the terrible teams are going to be next year. But I bet you the playoff teams are going to be a relatively, you won't have necessarily a substantial overlap with this year's playoff. or the, or what their re- exact rank ordering will be. Even. Yeah, Adi, but please go ahead. There's a lot, a lot to that 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 observation. Um, but you can have a you, all you really need is a, a super terrible team that's or, or one or two of them right. year to year, and a, maybe a super great team that's like you look at the at the. If I look back historically at football, I feel a little bit weird because I feel like the Patriots are just kind of every year on top. That adds a, a, a plus plus on the on that side. And every year, you know, the Lions are and the Jets are at the bottom and that creates this a correlation. Everyone else can be completely random and you're still going to have a correlation. You know what, what Adi's talking about for our listeners out there, these are called influential points. Yeah. These are points where just the single point itself could generate a positively or negatively sloped line and something with a significant correlation. Look, we only have a minute and a half left, but Shane, I want to give you that minute to tell us about the Lightning. They're the two-time champions, and they're currently sixth in the Eastern Conference, which in your zone is 
They're good. They're in the playoffs. That's all that matters. What are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, they're on good the in the playoffs. And I think they'll rise in the rankings too. They're not going to be down for long. I mean, you know, I, I, I think, you know, at this point in the season, you can't read too much into rankings. Um, you know, I think the Lightning certainly are going. I mean, if, if, if you ask me kind of who my top four or five teams are in terms of Stanley Cup kind of probability, the Lightning are definitely still in that set. So I, I, I don't read much anything. I read even less into the Lightning being in the position they're in right now as you do into the Bucks being in the position they're in right now. And just quickly in the last couple of seconds, um, are we in the period of a dynasty here? Like if the Lightning win this year, don't yeah. we have to oh, consider yeah. them a dynasty at that point? Oh, yeah, no, definitely. We would. We would. You know, I mean, I, you know, and it will be the first time that there's been some uh, team kind of that consistently good in such a short time span. You know, I mean, you know, Chicago kind of over the last, you know, like, you know, previous 10 years had a couple championships and stuff. But no, I mean, we are. And it's it's kind of like, you know, free agency and a lot of kind of parity mechanisms make it harder to be dynasties, I think, in a lot of major sports, especially hockey. Um, so it's extra impressive if they do kind of continue their success. All right. Well, this has been the first two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, this is Eric Brother. I'm here with uh, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. We still have two quarters to go. Please stay with us and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing Statistics and Data Science, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Professors of Statistics and Data Science, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week here on the podcast edition of Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Um, so guys, I had a, a topic I wanted to talk about. So every year near this time of the year, I get eliminated from my eliminator pool. And just to remind everybody what the I'm not in anymore, I'm gone. But just to remind everybody what the eliminator pool is in the NFL. But I have a question for each of you before I tell you the results. Um, each week, if you're in an eliminator, you pay some money conceptually if, there were, if it were real gambling. And then, of course, all you have to do is pick a winner of the game, not against the spread. You can pick any team you want. However, you can't use each team more than once. So if in week one of the season, I say the, you know, the Patriots are going to beat some team and they win, I'm still in, they lose, I'm out, but I can't use the Patriots again then in any of the other 16 weeks of the season or 18, there's now an 18 week season. I can't use them in any of the other weeks of the season. So let me start with you guys first. 850 people started in the eliminator pool I'm in. We've now played 10 weeks of the season. How many teams do you, how many people do you think are left with no losses out of 850? 20. I think I saw the answer. Uh, I would guess it's around, I mean, yeah, it's 29, 29, but let me tell, but let me say the, this is the part, this is the calculation I did, which surprises me. It's in the paper. You can look at it if you want, but don't. If I just asked you on any given week in the NFL season, you just have to pick a winner, not against the spread. Just pick the winner of a game what odds do you think you would give yourself to do that well just pick the winner you can pick a 15 point phrase assuming again pick whoever play against the lions every week i mean just whatever well, that, I, yeah i mean that's right and so you know I'm now, of course this survi- week they tied and if you pick the steelers you'd be eliminated my but- usual survival pool strategy and it served me well is to because you it's hard to figure out you know, who the best teams are. We're still trying to figure that out. It's not hard to figure out who the worst teams are in the NFL. 
year to year. I mean, the Lions are terrible. The Jets are terrible. The Jaguars are terrible. And so you just, you know, figure out the best team playing one of those guys every week and pick the best team, you know, whatever team's playing those guys. And that way you won't run out of, you know, good teams because you're actually picking against a bad team, not picking a particular good team. Um, that said, you know, yeah, what even would you the guess? Jaguars what would you can beat the, the Bills and even what would the you you know, Jets can beat the Titans. So any given Sunday, I mean, that's why survival pools are so interesting is that I would not give myself particularly high odds week to week because even the worst team can beat the best team. Or, so the, the number that I computed, which is the implied probability of this, which is 71%. That number doesn't seem ridiculously low to you two guys. I get to pick any game I want in a given week. Yeah, and I just right, have to so, pick the so, winner, not against the spread. Okay, well, so wait, where, can... Where's that 71% coming from? Your own success rate? No. no. So what I did is I said, let's imagine the success rate was P. What P would give me 29 teams left after oh, well, 800? Well, you don't want to estimate it based on your giant 800-person pool. There's probably a real – I mean, how many people there are picking anywhere close to – optimally or whatever i have no idea well right so i mean you know some people in survival pools just pick their favorite team every week until they're out okay so you're gonna argue heterogeneity strategy and knowledge is going to lower that number tremendously across people but i let me let you add in as well i pulled up some data so so maddie actually just sent us the list of the odds um but i have historical odds so maybe i can get you can you can throw it out what do you think is the Average high, uh, highest uh, odds for the favorite in terms of point spread. In any given uh, week, the average for the favorite. Take the average, take the, the most favorite team in terms of spread every week and average those. What do you think? You're I would say the number is roughly around nine points a week. Nine Shane? to ten. What do you think, Shane? Seven to eight. It's higher than that. And we're looking at the maximum, right? Yeah, the maximum. The, maximum. the average of the maximum. Right, the average of the maximum. So, so I'm getting around closer to minus 12. Um, What's the implied odds of that, 85, 15? Really? So that's about 85. That's about one standard deviation. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a little more than a standard. So it's around, 80, it's, it's around 85%. So basically what you're saying is the, the most lopsided game, um, on average, of course, there could be some weeks where, where, that's, where you don't have one, um, and and I'm averaging the ones where they're seven. So you point and out this a is bunch not, of things. This is not the relevant statistic for a survival pool. No, it's, it's not. not use it, it does give you most some, lopsided one. Week, it, week. So it does give you some distribution on that. So I would guess that the full distribution, and I haven't computed this, is probably um, during the season. I would guess that the worst week, where the most competitive week, is probably minus seven. You think? Yep. That most competitive week. And I would guess, uh, and obviously there's going to be some matchups. Well, let me point out a few things. So if remember again, and this just, by the way, this is what we're doing as scientists. We're trying to explain why this 71. So Adi gave, uh, Shane gave one good explanation, heterogeneity. Yep. Maybe it's a mixture of 80% people and 60% people or 50% people. That would lower the probability. Right. Um, uh, Adi's, here's a couple other things, Adi. Remember, you can't use the same team more than once. So any repeat oh, in your right. maximum, they're gone. Right, also... Yeah. There are bye weeks in the NFL season, so the best team might be gone in a particular week. Like you'd like to use them, but you can't use them. And so you could easily – all of these things – because I would have guessed 80%, 85% like you said, Adi, but all of these things now are starting to make me think maybe that oh, number is about right. 
Yeah, because you know what you, I mean? you can't pick the Jets every week to lose. No, you can. You can pick the Jets to lose every week. You just because they're the teams that are playing them keep changing. Oh, no, well, they play in the same division you, twice. You, you actually no? pick a you you normally pick a winner, and that's what you can't repeat. Ah, I see. The winner you can't. But you can pick the same losing team every week. Well, well except the except the Jets play the, the sex, Jets play the Bills, the Dolphins, the Patriots. Yeah, yeah no, twice. that's right. I, you, no, no, but those matter. So now I got it. No, now for those other three weeks, I got to pick somebody. When the Jets are on a bye week, I got to pick somebody. Okay, now there's four weeks I got to pick somebody else. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like chopping wood. I'm chop, 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 chop. Eighty-five percent all of a sudden gets chopped. I can't just yeah. pick whoever against the Jets. And by the way, and also the what Jets I think did is win bringing- a few games. What's bringing down the success rate as well is we were kind of, you set this up as sort of like, you know, as an informed person making these picks, how can I be doing so badly? But, uh, you know, in addition to there not being, uh, you know, it's not a broad collection necessarily informed people making picks. It's also in the early season, like the I, I, survival pools have a huge attrition rate in the first few weeks because we haven't figured out who the good and bad teams are. That's yet. a great point. Non-stationarity is another good point. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but Vegas is pretty good. And I think so. Basically, you're saying is that what happens to the point, point spread as the week of the season goes on? Oh, I should plot that. That should yeah. be pretty good, too. <laughs> oh, that's, that's I, I, I would get, there must be a lot of shrinkage of point spreads in the first couple of weeks of the season just because, you know, who I'm knows? Actually, I'm going to, I'm checking that right now. It's great, great. Well, that's, that's a great one. So, by the way, while we're still on the NFL, because I was talking about my limiter pool, I wanted to also talk to you guys about some other fact I just noticed in the NFL. And I think you guys know, um, just last year, they added a seventh playoff team, which means just the one team gets a bye. But I want to give the NFL some credit for this without looking at the sheet in front of you. What fraction, if, if we call still being, alive in the, still being alive in the playoffs – within one game of the playoffs. Sure, when, you know, let's say you have six losses and the team that's in the seventh spot has five. I'm calling that still alive. Of course, you could catch up more, but let's just use that definition for a second. What fraction of the 16 AFC teams do you think are still alive for the playoffs? And what fraction of the NFC teams do you think are still alive for the playoffs? And I will tell you, just as a hint, both conferences, the seventh place team right now, the bottom team that's in the playoffs has five losses so any team six losses or better is still alive by my metric how many do you think are still alive in the afc and how many in the nfc so that i i think it's only like four team uh a couple team maybe three or four teams in each conference right that are not still alive that are not still alive yeah it's you're right it's 12 out of the 16 in the afc and 15 out of the 16 in the nfc matter of fact the detroit lions are look we say the Eagles suck. All right, they suck. They're four and six. The yep. Panthers are in the seventh spot. They're five and five. The yeah. Eagles are one game back. I don't know all the tiebreakers right now, although they're not bad in the conference. The Eagles are one game back from the oh, yeah. seventh spot. Yeah. I give no, the I NFL mean, a lot I mean, of credit. That one, if, if I changed it back to the old system where it was six, then all of a sudden the number of teams that are within it, now you have to get to four losses totally different than the number of teams. I'm giving the NFL some credit for designing a system that it seems like there's a lot more teams. That, if I told you 10 or 11 weeks into a 17, 18-week season, 15 teams in the NFC are either in the playoffs or within one game of the playoffs, you'd say, that's pretty exciting. No, and it is. And I, I, I appreciate the extra teams being in contention, just like that's kind of why I like the wild card and the MLB as well, is that it's just you know more teams are in contention. Yeah later into the season, which I think is good for the sport. I mean, I don't like the, I, I, I mean, you know, I, I think the buys always have been kind of an un, 
you know, a, a disproportionate advantage to the to teams and the fact that it's now only one team that get like I, I don't like the kind of number one seed getting a buy and nobody else in the conference getting the buy. That's too much of, I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, an advantage that really mostly comes down to like things like strength and schedule and stuff that's like not balanced <laughs> between teams. So I don't I don't really like that aspect of the playoff structure as it's currently done. Um I guess I don't know how I'd correct that. Maybe it would just be expanding the playoffs to eight teams and having no buys or something. Oh, that like would that. do it. But, but, uh, but yeah, but I mean, I do, I do like, I, I, I kind of like the expanded wild card. I think it's more exciting. I don't like the expanded season, like, uh, but I like the expanded wild card. Well, guys, while we're still on the NFL, let me, let's go through a few games this week in the last couple minutes that we have here. So I have to do it. I have to start with the hottest team in the NFL. It's the New England Patriots. Oh, yeah, baby. We're back. Got to start with the Patriots. They're back. Look, yeah, they're no, I mean, I, 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 I hope everybody enjoyed that one season where they were mediocre. Well, I love just... the narratives that they're being spun like crazy on everything. Oh, yeah, it's 2001 all over again. It's yeah, 2001 right. all over again. Well, let me just well, say the interesting part also about the Patriots, which is fascinating to me. They're 4-0 on the road. Yeah. They're 2-4 and at home. Yeah. They, no, I mean, it's, and, and their last couple of games have been very impressive. I mean, I'm honestly, it's, it's easy to watch Mac Jones. I mean, I don't, I'm not buying into the high. I, I don't think they're going to get to the Super Bowl or anything like that, but it's so easy to watch Mac Jones and forget he's a rookie. Yeah. He's the best it's quarterback so right now. No, it's the no, system. No. It's partly the system. He's got the oh, greatest no, of course. coach of I mean, all time. You know, I, I, but you know, let's give him credit. He looks great, but let's start yeah. with that game. Patriots at Falcons. And by the way, the Falcons are four and five. They're yeah. in the playoff line, and they've not played terribly at all. The well, Falcons, they played terribly last week. They played but... terribly against the Cowboys. But yeah, no, I mean it's hard to know what to make of that team, you know, because they went in and beat the Saints, and then like Correct. you know get blown up. I mean they're all over the place. So what do you Which think? Patriots are. Thursday night game. Patriots at Falcons. Patriots minus seven. What are you guys thinking? I'm agreeing. I I, I don't know. I'm not, that's I'm a big not... spread yeah. on the road. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd pick the Patriots to cover, but I'll take them to win the game. That seems like a big spread for a road, you know, team. All but right. anyway, what about the following game? The number one team in the NFC right now, the Packers, because the Cardinals lost eight and two Packers at Vikings Packers minus two and a half. Yeah, I would I would give I would give more of the Packers. I mean, division matchups are always, you know, I think a little bit more unpredictable and stuff like that, but is it in Green Bay? It's in, or in, it's in Minnesota. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe And, that's and Minnesota right. is one of those teams where, you know, they've lost three games in the last 30 seconds. Like they could be. Yeah, no, it's three. true. I mean, Minnesota, when they win or lose, it's by a field goal. So maybe that's the exact right spread. <laughs> All right. Oh, let's mean, move on. So basically Sorry. what you're saying is that Green Bay might get minus 2.5, but have a 95, 90% chance of winning. <laughs> yeah. With a little tiny bit. <laughs> that, that's an oddity. Um, I know you can about, count on the Vikings to lose close games. They're, they're into that. By the way, what about another fascinating game? Now that a game that has massive playoff implications, Saints at Eagles. I wouldn't have said that a couple weeks ago. But yeah. the Eagles at four and six. And by the way, the Eagles are four and six, and they're four and two on the road. They're 0 and four at home. Yeah. Eagles haven't won a home game. They're 0 and four at home and four and two on the road. Saints, the Eagles are favored by one and a half over the Saints. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think that's probably because we keep expecting Trevor Simeon to not be very good as a quarterback. And he, but he's been actually pretty good. And I mean, obviously, the Saints are a well-coached team, and I think that's got a big part to play in it. But yeah, I mean, I the Eagles looked fantastic last week against the Broncos, who looked fantastic against the Cowboys. I mean, we're at the point of the season where <laughs> we're just, what is going on? It's what we call non-transitivity. Where yeah, no, there's a ton of non-transitivity. That's right. crazy. I mean, I, I wonder whether this is a season where we've seen more of it than usual. Yeah, I that's mean, that's what I've noticed, Adi. I, I think there's more. That's why when I first saw that number of only 29 teams left in the 850 of the Eliminator, just I've been doing this for 20 years. That number seemed low to me for only 10 weeks left. It seemed to me like there's been more upsets. There's been more, you know, A beats B, B beats C, but A can't beat C. A gets blown out by C. Uh-huh. Um, it seems to me to be a lot more of that that I've I feel seen like this it, season. And maybe, maybe it's just recency bias from the Chiefs dominating for the last couple of years. But I feel like there's less teams that are sort of like dominant, like like, you know, kind of have separated themselves from the pack. You know, I mean, the NFC has a lot of good teams, but a lot there's a lot of them. In the AFC, there's nobody who's really kind of standing out. I mean, the Titans kind of are, you know, in the driver's seat for the number one seed just because, you know, head-to-head matchups, and they've been doing okay. But nobody, nobody views the Titans as this unstoppable juggernaut or anything like that. So, guys, we only have two minutes left. Let me leave the last – or minute and a half left. Let me leave the last minute and a half to the game of the week. There's no doubt about it. And I'll start with you, Shane. We each get 30 seconds. Cowboys at the Chiefs. Yeah. The Chiefs are favored I mean, by two and a half. Which Chiefs team are we going to see? Uh, Shane, you get your 30 seconds. Cowboys at Chiefs. I, I, I'm going to continue. I still haven't quit the Chiefs. It's going to be the Chiefs. I'm going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be, the, I, I, I think it's going to be the Chiefs. But I mean, I think uh, the Chiefs, this is a defense that will, unlike Vegas, this is a defense that will actually test whether or not Patrick Mahomes is really kind of back and put it together. Adi, what do you think? Cowboys or Chiefs? Well, give me some facts here. What's the spread right now? Well, Kansas City's favored by two and a half, which means it's neutral on a home field. Cowboys are seven and two. The Chiefs are six and four. Okay, so what you have to balance is preseason expectations, which are all in the favor of the Chiefs. Yep. And recency, which accepting last game are all in favor of the Cowboys. So I actually think we overreact. So I would I would argue that that Mahomes just uh, you know tearing it up on Monday night and no not Monday night on Sunday night um, is uh, factored too much into the point spread. And so I'm going with uh, Dallas. Well, good. And the last 15 seconds, I get to make my pick. Uh, I'm going to stay with the Chiefs. Uh, I'm not getting off the bandwagon. I just, I I don't know. Something's been going on with Mahomes, but he's going to get his act together. And I'm not a, I'm not a believer in the Cowboys. So I'm going to take the Chiefs in that game too. But that's a tremendous game and I'm excited to see it. So guys, that's been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We have one quarter to go. We'll be introducing, uh, uh, interviewing Seth Partnell, uh, who's an NBA analyst at The Athletic. He's also the author of The Midrange Theory. So please stay with us and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing statistics and data science here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my two colleagues today, professor of statistics and data science, Adi Weiner, professor of statistics and data science, Shane Jensen. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball, the Zoom edition, the podcast edition. But who knows, soon enough, we may be back in the actual studio recording live. Um, One of the greatest things about doing Wharton Moneyball for almost the last 
next eight years is that we have guests on who are actually applying analytics and practice. And today's guest, returning guest, is no exception. We're happy to welcome back Seth Partnow. Uh, Seth is an NBA analyst at something we all read, which is The Athletic. He's also an advisor to the CEO at StatsBomb. And now, maybe breaking news. It's breaking on social media already, but breaking news maybe for Sirius XM Radio. He's now the author of The Midrange Theory, which is available wherever you can buy books. So, Seth, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, good to be back. Yeah. So let's just start with a few basic questions. Um, I've written a few books, and I don't want to get into the therapy of why I've done so. So let's get started. Like, just first, let's before we even get what's in the book. Why did you write the book? Why did you feel you had something to say that you had to put in an entire book? Oh, frankly, it wasn't wasn't my idea. Um, Triumph Books, the publisher, um, guess right around the All Star Break, twenty twenty, basically called me up and said, "Hey, write a book for us." And 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 it's like, oh, it seems like a good idea. And then kind of uh, there were no sports for a while. So I had some time on my hands and then we did kind of discussed it at greater length and kind of the idea for what the book would be uh, came together a little bit more and, and then kind of proceeded from there. I'd, I'd had, you know, the notion to sometimes write a book, but I think that someone else uh, pushing me to do it probably accelerated the process greatly. So let me ask you a, prof- a question as a marketing professor here. We always ask STP, segmentation, targeting and positioning. Who's the target segment for this book? Because one of the things I always say is like when I think about Wharton Moneyball, yeah, we, of course, we want all sports listeners and all people that love data science, but it's probably, you know, I'll call it an above the median sophistication level. Where do you see the target for the mid-range theory? Um, the, the way the, the idea was originally pitched to me, again, by the publisher, was there's, you know, every year there's several baseball books that come out about, you know, hey, you know, understand a little bit more about baseball while not making it kind of uh, homework. But there's, there are very rarely those for basketball. I think we're seeing more of them for football, frankly, uh, but to kind of do that in sort of the, the basketball realm. And so um, I think that is the, the, the target audience is not necessarily the the deep dive already immersed in statistics reader, but, or at least basketball statistics, but certainly the data curious and also sort of the, the, the fiddler, the, the person who likes to take things apart and look at them and understand how they work. Like, I think that's, that's the audience as much as, as uh, kind of the gung ho. I love stats basketball fan. So let me uh, ask you, Seth, because I'm actually, uh, oh, I'd say about two thirds of the way through um, the book right now, and I'm enjoying it. But you, you've really exposed me, and I'll, and I think it's a it's a conundrum. I'm probably one of the few people who knows what RAPM is, regularized adjusted plus minus, and probably has even implemented it, but has no idea what a post up is. I thought I knew, but it turned out I don't um, because I, because basketball is really not a sport I know that much about. So I would say fundamentally, you really should be deeply curious about basketball. Um, and then I think the statistics will kind of follow. It is definitely a deep dive in statistics, you know, analytics applied to basketball. But so maybe you can explain to me that I have so many questions. Um, well, so let's take them one at a time here, Adi. We got we're, we're listening. Our listeners are trying to follow us here on the radio here. We don't have a whiteboard in front of us. No, but I but, but my real my real issue is in terms of the audience. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it, am I right that you really expected to know a lot of basketball to really enjoy this book? I definitely wrote it for the basketball fan. Um, I didn't want to write a kind of a basketball analytics for idiots, 
book. I'm, I'm frankly not sure I could do that. In and not saying that that's wouldn't be a useful uh, a useful book. It's just I'm I'm not sure that I'm the person to write that. So yeah, I wanted to I, I wanted to talk about basketball and to talk about basketball with with sort of. Uh, kind of a degree of familiarity and conversationally, I think I do have to assume that there's some, there's some familiarity with, with, with kind of not just the sport as a sport, but kind of the state of the NBA. So I think, yeah, I think it's fair to say that this is definitely written for with the NBA fan in mind. Well, Seth, let me ask you. So what would you say are the main, um, empirical findings in the book so what are the like are there new metrics that you found uh, that are interesting um and does the mid-range oh no i just start with the title um i haven't yet read the book but i promise i will buy it wherever i can buy books and give it to lots of people as gifts um is does the book have to do with since i can say just from the title um the nba has come threes and dunks but there's still the mid-range game does it have anything to do with the the mid-range still being alive and well in the nba or is it a different mid-range uh, it it does so that's i think the the book is more anthological than it is uh sort of a single narrative and the title chapter which is the mid-range theory uh it, it discusses that and essentially the the story of that is commonly told about the evolution of the nba is it's become all dunks and threes and the mid-range has vanished when we examine a little bit more, we we it, it's much more a specific type of mid range has gone away, and it's not the kind that people are lamenting. It's the big man standing seventeen feet from the basket, catching and shooting off of ball reversal or something like that. That that guy is now standing behind the three point line. The star player who shot clock is running down gets into his bag, as they say, and, and pulls up for an elbow jumper. The same sort of category of players are still taking that kind of shot at the same frequency with some exceptions that with your Steph Curry's, your Dame Lillard's are, have moved that out beyond the three, but for the most part, the star players are still taking these mid range star shots, which are these, you know, the indelible images we think of is Michael Jordan, maybe pushing off and rising up and hitting a, a, a championship winning, you know, uh, eight, eight, 20 footer against Utah. Byron Russell. Yep. Yeah. The, the, the same players are, are, are still taking those shots. And so it hasn't gone anywhere. It's just understanding it's everyone else. Who's kind of basically standing in more intelligent spots and not just that, that has come to pass, but why? So let me ask you about a few players, one from my early childhood or childhood and not early. And then one from my, you know, young adulthood. So where would Patrick Ewing, the classic 20 foot jumper guy, but never threes. And where would Tim Duncan fall in the mid range theory, who I think is maybe the greatest power forward that ever shot two pointers, elbow jumpers and other stuff like that. How how would they fit into the mid range theory? So some of that is because the league has, as for various reasons, some of which are rule changes, some of which are strategic, some of which are just development of player skills, especially among the taller players. And I get into all this in the chapter. Um, the the high usage players ha- are increasingly kind of guard and forward size and less post size. I think within the the group of kind of the post up center, which was definitely much more of a thing in the eighties, nineties, early two thousands they were probably taking the same kind of mix again, like Tim Duncan got to the rim a fair amount. Tim Duncan drew a lot of free throws, but 
being a star player, you end up taking a lot of shots and you can't always get the best shots. And so when you end up with the not best shot, you want your star player to be the one taking it because he's the one who's best at it. I would say the the greatest thing, I'm sure you've looked at this, Seth, the greatest thing about Michael Jordan, how the hell did that guy shoot 48 to 50% from the field when he's taking every trash shot when the other guys are giving up the ball with three seconds left on the shot clock to shoot the way he shot the ball? People say he only shot, I don't know, 48, 49, 50%. Any other player in the NBA that took the shots with the shot clock he had would have shot 35% from the field. No, and that's just it. That's why I call them star shots is because the, the players who can make them at any sort of reasonable rate are the best players. And that's why they're the best players. They've, they've they, you sort of have to earn your right to take shots from that area now, as opposed to it just being, oh, I caught the ball at 19 feet from the basket. Let me fling it up, which was, you know, if you, in my mind, it's always Jerome Kersey taking a 19 foot baseline jumper for the Portland Trailblazers. That's, that's a shot that just doesn't exist anymore. So, Seth, um, one, the, ch- the, the first line of the mid-range chapter begins, three is greater than two, this is the shortest chapter ever. And I like that because I've been trying to explain to people, you know, why it's so obvious to take three-pointers. But you actually taught me something, an enormous amount b- about basketball I didn't know, but the importance of an important rule change, um, which, was, which is something I'd love you to elaborate on for our, our listeners about how it used to be in the NBA that you had to play man-to-man. And then it, all of a sudden that rule got you know, jettisoned and you can now play a zone. And that actually opened the door to these three-point um, revolution. It wasn't just three greater than two. I'm not sure I quite understand it. So I'm welcoming you an opportunity to explain it a little bit better for all of us. So the short version is in, under the old illegal defense rules is actually pretty easy to create a situation where your best player could kind of go one-on-one against the defender. And then if you wanted to double team where that double team was coming from would be obvious. It's, you know, I, I know you guys are, are big football guys. It's like, if you, you weren't really able to disguise the blitz. So, and, and if you're, you oh, it's coming. I just dump it over the top. We run, we, you know, get a first down, maybe a bigger play than that. It's very similar to that. You could, you could space three guys to the opposite side of the floor, dump the ball into to Shaq, to Patrick Ewing, to Akeem Olajuwon, and let them go one-on-one. Or, and then if you want to double team, a guy would have to sprint down and double team, and a guy is obviously open. Once you allow players to sort of shade off of guys and play a zone, not just, not just a, you know, a recognizable like rec league two, three zone defense, <laughs> but allowing guys to, okay, well, no, you're standing up beyond the, and you can't, you can't even see that far, let alone shoot that far. I'm just not going to guard you. Once that guy is allowed to come off and like sit one, like in, in NBA parlance, it's the nail. It's kind of a, a spot on the floor, a little bit above the free throw line. I'm just going to stand here and, and muck up everything the offense wants to do. That changes the geometry of everything so much so that no, you can no longer just, throw the ball to a guy and let him go to work because guys can sort of play in between and bother him, not allow um, easy decisions out of that, out of that position. And all these little changes sort of uh, build on top of one each other to make what was originally in a one-on-one situation, a pretty efficient play is now, you know, you're cutting, you cut, you know, a couple percentage points off here or there over a hundred possessions in a game. All of a sudden that's a pretty big difference. If you're chopping those couple percentage points every time. Seth, um, actually that discussion and some of the prior stuff got, has got me thinking about it. One of the things I'm kind of fascinated by in basketball is the extent to which kind of the regular season and playoffs are kind of a different game, both in terms of kind of player usage, 
but also in terms of kind of the strategies that you're you're, you're talking about here. Um, is that difference is it, to the extent that it's a different game? Is it getting more different over time as the sport evolves, or less different? What, I really think I, I, th- I think that the that the I've I have a, a chapter on that in in the book, and I really think that the difference is is growing. It's growing uh, much broader. Um, I think that this is the perfect place to discuss it. Um, I think that it's it's you have two kind of different styles of play. You know, if you if you're deciding how to play and you don't really know who you're going to play tonight, or you don't have a, a chance to to prepare, or you're playing four games in six nights or whatever, you play a, a game theory optimal style. This is this is the style that's going to work against the across the range of 29 other teams. This is going to work the best you're playing the same team seven times over two weeks, you go to a much more exploitive style and, and very different uh, strategies and skill sets come to the fore just from that. Um, and then, you know, as you, you mentioned usage, you can play your star players longer, both because the games are more spaced out, but also what are you saving them for? Like, it's like, okay, well, we're not going to be able to use him next week. Well, if we don't use him now, we're on the beach next week. So yeah, we'll play our star player 40 minutes. Um, and, and just the, just the amount of, of, of frankly prep time that you have for, for teams in the playoffs and having experienced this, like both going into the first game and then, okay, here's what they did to us last game. What are we going to do to counter? And then we'll counter and they'll counter our counter. And that sort of iterative strategy is much more of a thing in a playoff setting when you have time and focus to do those adjustments than it is in the regular season and almost necessarily I think that that emphasizes different skill sets over the ones that can succeed across, you know, the game theory optimal regular season. So this is Eric Bradlow. We're here on Wharton Moneyball with uh, I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics and Data Science, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. We're talking to Seth Partnow. Seth is an NBA analyst at The Athletic, advisor to the CEO at StatsBomb. He also worked, well, I'm going to transition to this in a second. He also used to work for the Milwaukee Bucks, and he's now the author of the book, The Mid-Range Theory. So, Seth, um, Shane's question is what they call, you know, it's a big softball because it's exactly where I wanted to go next. So let's talk about two, one a given player and one a team you used to work for and how they're doing this year and how you're seeing their prospects. But let's start with someone near and dear to our hearts in the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love who loves everyone, especially in sports and treats them with the utmost of respect. And that's Ben Simmons. So you could make an argument that Ben Simmons has a lot of value over an 82-game season. A lot of things he does extraordinarily well. Um, scoring and shooting is not particularly one of them. And you could argue he's easily exploited in a playoff series, similar to Shane's thing. Maybe he's a good regular season player, but maybe not as valuable in the playoffs. How do you see Ben Simmons? And, and also, just because it's not just your work at the Athletic, but having worked for an NBA team, where does this end? Where does this go? Is he, a great, is he worth three number one picks? Where do you see the guy and, and what team wants him? Okay, well, that's several questions at once. Um, <laughs> the, so the, the 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 short version is is I think that that at this point the evidence is reasonably decent that in a playoff setting he's not an ideal foil for for Joel Embiid. I don't think that 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 it, that is enough to sort of dispositively say he's not a good playoff player or he couldn't be. It's, it's just in the sort of the team constructs that the Sixers have put out in the playoffs, you know, a lot of what they're going to do is going to revolve around Embiid operating in the post in the mid post. 
and there's kind of no place for Simmons to go. Right. Um, he can still be. Yeah, a, and, like, and B draws everybody yeah. into the paint. And so where's yeah. he going to go? He's yeah. not driving. There's already three guys in the paint covering and B. Now there's a version. There's a version of him that can be more effective than he was last postseason, certainly. But that's that. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff to, to get into there that, that is, you know, borders on hot takey. So we'll avoid that. <laughs> but, um, but I do think in a different kind of team structure, he could be a very useful playoff player. Now that would that would involve kind of one major change in his game, and that's an increased willingness to get fouled, which I think is something where you know this is something where you know the the pure metrics kind of fall down a little bit. The psychological elements, I like, I, I haven't worked with him. I don't, but it observationally it seems reasonable to surmise that that he's someone who doesn't shoot well from the free throw line and therefore does not want to go to the free throw line. I agree. I his, people talk about his play against the box where he gave up the ball two inches from the basket or two feet from the basket yeah, against mm-hmm. the Hawks. I would say it wasn't because he didn't want to shoot. It's because he doesn't want to get fouled and he would have gotten fouled on that play. He doesn't want to go to the free throw line. And I, but I think for the style of play for him to be most effective in a playoff setting requires him to be very aggressive and, Hey, I'm six eleven and I have physical dominance over you. So I'm either getting to the basket and scoring you're fouling me, or I'm finding an open shooter because you had to bring help. And it's sort of, I mean, a, a similar role to how the bucks have used Giannis Antetokounmpo, but um, he's a different style, slightly different style of player, like not the, overwhelming physical force that Giannis is, but I think of a better ball handler and passer. So a similar concept, uh, maybe not to the extent, but could work. Um, but that's just not something that's going to happen in Philadelphia because for the Sixers right. to be a championship team, it starts with Joel Embiid. Cause, and boy, how Giannis better. changed the narrative at the free throw line and whatever it was game. You will remember exactly, but I don't remember if it was game six or game seven, whatever that game was, yeah. whatever the last game was, he was like 22 of 24 or 25 from the line. Like he was making every free throw in the history of mankind. I don't care how many free throws he makes the rest of his career. He made it when they counted in that game. And, and the, the thing about, even when he struggled from the free throw line, he has never stopped I'm going to dunk on you or you're going to foul me. And if I have to shoot free throws, I have to shoot free throws. It's never affected his willingness to play the way he has to play. And that's, that I think is a difference between. Well, let's talk about the, we're going to do this in uh, we've already done this in the first part of the show, but I I want to ask you, um, I just looked today because I I knew the Bucks didn't, wasn't, weren't, was not off to a great start, but they're six and eight. So, and I think right now, I can look at my notes here. I'm pretty sure they're currently, if the playoffs started today, they are number, I think it's 11th in the Eastern Conference. So they're not in the playoffs if the playoffs started today. How concerned are you about the six and eight start of the Bucks? at all concerned? You know, we always talk here on Wharton Moneyball, how many games does it take to really know a team? We're at 14. We're not, at, you know, we're getting, you know, five or six more games, let's say they're, Nine and 11, 10 and 10. Well, that's a quarter of the season. So wh- what are you thinking now as someone that used to work for the Bucks, as a Milwaukeean, someone that must love the Bucks? What are you thinking about the team right now? So the Bucks are, there's a, there's a, a little bit of a feeling because largely because of injuries. I mean, they've, they've, I think, had their top four players on the floor together for maybe 10 minutes this season total. Um, because, you know, uh, Brooke Lopez has been out a lot of the season. Drew Holiday missed a lot of the regular season. Chris Middleton has been in, in COVID protocols for the last couple of weeks. So it's basically been Giannis. 
Um, so they basically haven't had their team on the floor at any point this year. So how much do we know about them? Frankly, nothing. You know, it's, 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 you know, so there's a bit of almost a sim to January feeling about their games right now. It's like, all right, we'll, we'll get our guys back and then we'll do our thing and, and see what we look like. I think that the, that, that frankly around the league, the level of sort of panic around the box is, is sort of nil just because it's like, yeah, well, we know what they need to be good and they just don't have the guys right now. Now, if, you know, Brooke Lopez is a massive human being with a back problem, that's a worry. Um, but that's sort of that's not a basketball worry. That's an injury worry. So, um, so I'm wondering if you'll if you'll grant me this analogy, since you obviously have studied basketball for a long time. So when I look right now and you'll see my analogy in a second, when you see the Lakers right now, obviously LeBron's out. They stink right now. Russell Westbrook is. Well, you'll tell me his regularized adjusted plus minus, but I can tell you every time I look at the box score, his plus minus is as negative as they come. I'm like, wow, this guy is one negative plus minus guy. So first, I'd like you to tell us what regularized adjusted plus minus is. But it started to make me think, this is about Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis isn't good enough to win a bunch of games by himself. Would you say the same about Giannis? So let me let me start with regularized adjusted plus minus. First, am I right that Russell Westbrook is horrific in however you want to statistically carefully measure plus minus? And am I right at thinking that maybe this is saying something about Anthony Davis and maybe without all the very good but not superstar Bucks players out, this says something about Giannis? But let's take it one at a time. Sure. So, uh, and, and Adi can probably speak more to the technical elements of it since he's, he's implemented a rap model, but the short version is, <laughs> is, 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 is the short, the short version is, is you look at like the, the box, the, the box score plus minus just the, the player was on the floor. The team scored seven more points, perfectly descriptive, but there's a whole bunch that you just don't know who were they playing with? Who were they playing against? Was it garbage time? Was it oh, so on and so forth? Um, essentially the adjusted plus minus family of stats, attempts to control for that context by, first of all, many of the, the models kind of eliminate garbage time because we don't care because that's not the same basketball. Uh, but then it's, it's you know, con- basically a big regression model looking at who you on the floor with and against and trying to estimate across the whole league for the smallest error across the whole league in, in terms of who's on the floor and the observed movement of the scoreboard. Um, and so that gives you a pretty reasonable sort of first pass though very noisy across a single season estimate of a, of a player's i i like to call them impact stats so if a player is a plus two rapm player that means that it's the the midpoint of his the estimate is that every 100 possessions that they play the team will outscore the the opponent assuming the nine other players in the court are perfectly average that team will be ahead two points on average after a hundred possessions. Because and just give me a play. sense, a star, a star player plays how many possessions a game? A star player is going to play in the neighborhood of 70 possessions a game, maybe. Okay. So uh, that means that player might be worth one and a half points, roughly a game. The person you just described uh, the uh, plus two player will be worth one and a half points. A game. One and a half points a game is not nothing, by the way. One and a half no. points a game. It, it translates to about four or five wins a season which is, you know, you translate into, you translate that to dollars. It's a $15 million <laughs> player. That's why the salaries are what they are. So you'd say, I can't believe this guy's making 15 million. It's like, yeah, that's what an average starter makes because he gives you five wins. Um, so that's the, that, that's sort of the first question. Second question, Russell Westbrook, um, 
it's too early this year to really to have a a, a, a rapum that means anything. Um, I have a sense that if it continues this way, his will be very bad this year. In the past, he's been good, but not to the level of his reputation. Um, he like, especially in sort of the post Kevin Durant era, he's been uh, you know more of a player we call a floor raiser. Someone who, t- who can take a team from like 30 to 45 wins right. isn't going to do much to take a team from 45 to 60 wins because of some of the limitations. And frankly, in the role he's in with the Lakers and as his physical skills decline, that's not getting better. No, I, absolutely. Yeah, before I tur- maybe Thanks. before I tur- yeah, before maybe I turn it over to uh, let me just turn it over to Adi for uh, kind of the next question here. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, Seth, let me just ask you a question because um, I'll uh, reflect on the different statistics. So a, a plus minus is really just a marginal stat, and therefore it has all the, the problems of a marginal analysis. It doesn't control for factors. Adjusted plus minus tries to do a regression, and regularized adjusted plus minus essentially tries to deal with the small sample sizes by regularizing the coefficients, which is very much akin to Bayesian shrinkage. The problem that I have just by looking at the numbers, and maybe you can reflect on it, it feels like it overshrinks, which is my way of saying that it's undercutting the stars a little bit. Um, because what happens is when you when you they, they look a little too close together when they're in their Rapham stores, not 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 really spread out as much as you'd expect to see, um, particularly at the upper end. Um, but it does make enormous difference. It, it, iso- it found, for example, Jimmy Butler l- looks great, but other players who that other people would think of as sort of comparable are just horrible. And and um, and a lot of that has to do with those combinations and also probably the defense, which it probably does a much better job of, of measuring. But do you think it's, it's, it's a good reflection, Rapham, or do you think it's, it's what I would call overshrunk, which is my, my completely untutored observation? <laughs> so there's an interesting thing is there's no sort of one official uh, RAPM stat. It's a, you know, as with all of these things, as you get more complicated, um, there's a lot going on underneath the hood that if you're not very careful about, you sort of introduce, uh, you could bias error, whatever you want to call it, into the output. So, I mean, one of the features of, well, not the features, but one of the the the, the, the parameters is, 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 and again, I'm, I'm getting way out towards the edge of my technical knowledge here. So correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a Lambda term, which basically is, is, is that's always what, going to be the amount of shrinkage. Yeah. Which, that's which typically contra- the, the symbol we use for amount of shrinkage. Yep. Yep. And, and so, but that's a, that's, that's a choice. What you, what you set that as a choice. So it's like, so there is a degree of almost eyeballing the results to say, no, that spread looks right. So I've got about the right Lambda. So that's, so um, there's nothing, you know, in, in, if you think that in your mind that the better players are better relative to the worst players than your model is showing you, that's sort of something you can adjust in your model building, but that gets into a whole bunch of other sort of, of, uh, of model choice questions that, that are, that are, it can be quite difficult. So Seth, let me ask you a few, in the few minutes we have left, let me ask you a few more questions. I think you use the term impact analytics. I'm pretty sure that's a term you just used. Um, What metrics or statistics do you look at or do you calculate now that you think are on kind of the vanguard of analytics in basketball? So I actually, I do use RAPM a lot. I know all there's a lot of problems it has, but the, but 
the issue I have with a lot of the, the, the there's, there's metrics that do better job predicting out of sample uh, estimated plus minus is one that's created by Taylor Snar, who used to be a, uh, an analyst with the Utah jazz. Um, Darko is a model created by Costa Medvedovsky, uh, a good friend of mine. Um, there's enough kind of black boxiness in terms of how these models introduce sort of a statistical prior that you're never really sure what players it's what what archetypes of players it's uh kind of uh enhancing and what kind it's holding down which then becomes a problem longer term as the game changes a little bit and certain traits maybe become more or less valuable it maybe is is sort of fighting the last war a little bit and at least with RAPM I know exactly like this is this is almost this is pure on off and I can kind of mentally adjust for kind of situations where I know it's okay yeah his his he his RAPM showed up poorly this year because he was hurt because he was being played out of position you know because his backup was really good so like the the on off differentials were were you know were were wonky so I can sort of mentally adjust for those things kind of on an ad hoc basis um, and I prefer that to kind of these, these completely almost, well, that's what the model says, uh, kind of, kind of approaches. And that, that, that's just me. Like, I, I think those, those metrics are extremely useful, um, for, especially for predictive modeling. Um, I think I lost the second half of your question. No, no, <laughs> I was just asking you what what are what yeah. are the what are the analytics? What are the uh, metrics yeah. that you're looking at now? Yeah, I I I uh, frankly I tend to prefer bottom up metrics to begin with. I tend I like to look at you know how a player shoots in different situations. Whether it's you know getting into with the player tracking data, you can see does a player shoot better going to his left to his right? Does he is this a guy who shoots well on the move or does he have to be standstill? Uh, does the contest bother him a whole lot? Does he finish well at the rim versus these kind of more these descriptions of how a player gets to his production are far more interesting to me than sort of the, you need the first pass overall player value model for many reasons. But for me, the interesting questions are much more bottom up from sort of the game itself. How does it, what does a player do and how does he do it on the floor in basketball terms? Well, since he's two thirds of the way through your book, the mid range theory, which we recommend to all our listeners to go out and get, I'll give the last question to my colleague, professor of data science and statistics, Adi Weiner. Yeah. So, so thank you, Eric. Um, my, my, my question is a general one. I've been very fascinated by your book because I was amazed at how really advanced basketball statistics have become. So if you think about the trajectory um, as you asymptote to, you know, you're getting very little return as you, but, uh, uh, at, the, at the asymptote on your investment, where do you think basketball is on that curve? Like most people think of baseball as pretty advanced and you just need to do it. Otherwise, you're not going to keep up. Uh, football is doing a lot, but isn't implementing a lot. Where do you think see basketball? Is it a long way to go or our or, or second way to think about it is there teams that are not doing it? Are they really disadvantaged at this point um, or is it still developing? So I think that there's a long way to go, but it's as much because of the nature of the sport. Baseball is such an sort of an instant feedback loop that you do smart things. Good results happen pretty quickly. Um, so it's, it's just, there's just no question you, you do this or you lose, um, in basketball, the importance of superstar players is such that you can have pick a player. It's LeBron, KD, Steph, you know, 
Giannis, whatever sort of inner circle top players you want to name. You can do a lot dumb with those players on your team and still be pretty damn good just because those guys cover up so many warts. So it's not as, as immediate kind of the, the, the returns to it. I do think you'll see that the teams that over time are consistently good and able to consistently recycle to be good as they go through team uh, kind of team constructions. Um, you know, the teams, the teams that I think have implemented it well over time have been, I mean, the Rockets under Daryl Morey, and I strongly suspect the 76ers now, um, the, the Raptors, um, Oklahoma City, frankly, uh, those are those are some of the teams that that come to mind quickly that that um, implement it well. And then there there are even teams that don't have a huge kind of investment in in terms of personnel or resources that that implement it as part of their process very well. And I think of the Denver Nuggets, who were a team you can see it. They always are a team that if they have injuries. Their 14th man plays. Hey, this guy can play too. And that's that's a reflection of kind of not just analytics but organization wide being smart decision makers of which analytics is a, is a part. Um, so that's a long-winded way of saying kind of because of the um, you know, imperfect feedback, I think basketball has a long way to go just because it takes much longer for the sort of the benefits to become so clear that you can't do it any other way. Well, Seth, um, we'd like to thank you uh, for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Seth Part now. Seth is an NBA analyst at The Athletic advisor to the CEO at Statsbomb, uh, worked for the Milwaukee Bucks. But of course, the most important thing right now is go out and get his book, The Mid-Range Theory. Uh, Seth, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Thank you so much for having me again. Really enjoyed it. Great. We'll see you soon on the show. So on behalf of myself, Eric Bradlow, my two co-hosts today, Professor of Statistics and Data Science, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen, uh, some combination of the three of us and Cade Master here every week on Morton Moneyball. Uh, thanks to our producer, the big boss man, Matt Datz, and our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. <laughs>